And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Well, how many know who, besides Tyler, know who James Boyce is? Oh, okay, we got one more in the back. Yo, you were here first service, you cheat. Um, that's Kathy. No, James Boyce was the uh, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, largest Presbyterian church. He's quite the pastor theologian. Now, here's what he says about these two verses. They're most important in the letter and perhaps all literature. That's... <laughs> That's an endorsement there. Uh, they are the theme of this epistle and the essence of Christianity, he says. Now, as you probably know, I mentioned it a minute ago, Martin Luther's life was turned upside down when he finally understood verse 17, our second verse this morning. And of course, that transformed his life and shortly after began the Reformation. So these verses have had an incalculable effect on world history. And they'll have a profound effect on your life personally if God opens your eyes to the truth that is in them. Before we look at the verses in detail, we need to see Paul's flow of thinking here, his reasoning. He begins verse 16 with the word for. What does that tell us? Anytime you see the word for or because or therefore, it's, it's, it's based on what has previously been said. Well, you go back to verse 15, and here's what Paul says. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, Paul, why are you not ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, how is the power of God for salvation how is the, the gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, is this a new idea that Paul is, has, is trying to put forward here? No. He then cites Habakkuk 2.4. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, at the out, outset, we, we might... Uh, you know, wonder why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's a figure of speech called litotes. I didn't know that. Okay? Here's what a lito it's, it's, it's It's where through understatement, the affirmative is expressed by the negative of the contrary. I'll give you an example. You'll understand exactly. When you say, hey, he's not a bad athlete, what are you really saying? Oh, he's a good athlete. So when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he means I glory in the gospel. I am proud of the gospel. Why does he express it that way? Well, there are many reasons that a first century Rome, um, Roman might feel a bit uncomfortable with this Jewish man coming to a sophisticated city like Rome to preach about Jesus. Now, they understand Jesus was a, a, a carpenter prophet who was executed by the Roman government in the most humiliating manner possible, right? Being crucified. After all, this is Rome, the capital of the civilized world, even though uh, crucifixion is not that civilized. So your message had better appeal to the educated or it won't fly. Your message needs to offer political solutions to the pressing needs of the empire or it's not, a go it's not going to gain a hearing here. It had better offer some answers to the massive problems of slavery, greed, lust, and violence or the people in Rome won't listen. 
But Paul's main message, it didn't address, directly address these issues. His main message focused on the main need of every human being, whether the most religious Jew or the most educated, worldly, immoral Greek, namely, the need to be reconciled to a holy God. How can I be right with God? This is what this passage is about this morning. Paul's theme in Romans is God and the good news that, got, that comes from God, how sinners can be delivered from His righteous judgment and reconciled to Him. This we call salvation. Now here Paul tells us, because the gospel is the power of God to set for salvation to everyone who believes, we must believe it and we must proclaim it boldly. Let's pray. Father, we are mere clay in your hands. We pray that you would bring, uh, breathe the Spirit into our hearts even now for understanding, for illumination. Lord, that we can be lit a fire, that we can understand some things we've never seen before. And in the doing, Father, we will trust you more. Help us to do it for your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, just three main points here. The first one's going to be rather long. The last two will be... Pretty quick. Number one, the gospel, what Paul says here, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To proclaim the gospel boldly or unashamedly, would you not agree that we have to believe it? And in order to believe it, we can take it one step further and say we also need to understand it. All right? That makes sense. So I'm going to explore five statements about salvation that stem from our text. A, salvation is the main need of every person. Now, this anticipates the point that Paul makes in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, two entire chapters where he shows that all have sinned and fall under God's righteous condemnation. Because we've all sinned, uh, whether the religious Jew or the worldly Greek, it doesn't matter, all are alienated or separated from God who is absolutely righteous. So, all are under God's wrath. Paul immediate, immediately explains in the next verse, which we won't see till about March 13th, Lord willing, but verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Salvation refers to being rescued from God's wrath and judgment that we deserve because of our sin. It means being delivered from the penalty of sin. And that happens the moment we believe. We call that justification. It means being delivered from the power of sin as we grow in holiness over time. We call that sanctification. And it also means being delivered from the very presence of sin. When we stand blameless in His presence in glory. We call that glorification. Now, those are all negative things, right? We're talking about sin. Uh, you're delivered from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. That's good. That's things that bring us down. But there are also positive benefits, right? S such as enjoying a reconciled relationship with God and receiving all of the just unfathomable riches in Christ. Those are good things. 
But if we think that we need to sell the gospel by glossing over the negative aspects of salvation that have to do with sin and focusing only on the positive side of it, we fall into the sin of being ashamed of the gospel. We don't need God's salvation. And Christ did not die on the cross or didn't need to die on the cross if we're all basically good people who just need a little bit of encouragement to be right with God. No, we need a Savior who was crucified for our sins because we all by nature are ungodly rebels under the righteous wrath of God. Now, that statement right there is offensive to natural man. But if we pull our punches on this point, we're missing the heart of the gospel. The gospel is only good news to the person who realizes that he needs to be saved or he will eternally punish or perish, excuse me. Well, B, salvation requires the very power of God. This gospel doesn't tell people about the power of God. Paul says it actually is the power of God. This means that salvation is not something that sinners can attain by their own efforts, by their own good works. If that were so, then again, Christ did not need to die on the cross. Salvation is not a joint project where God has done His part and, and now uh, you must contribute your part. Well, you may be thinking, but, but don't I need to believe? Well, yes, you do need to believe. And as we'll see in a moment, salvation is received and sustained through faith from start to finish. But saving faith, which includes repentance, is not something that sinners can produce on their own. Paul tells us it's actually the gift of God, so that we won't boast. It's crucial to see that salvation does not depend on a human decision, but on the very power of God. It requires that God impart new life to a dead sinner, something that is impossible for man to bring about. You remember in John 11, Jesus is there at Lazarus' tomb, and all of a sudden he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. Imagine the bystanders who were and didn't know Jesus and didn't know what he was up to. I don't think anybody did at that point. Uh, they probably say, is he crazy? He's speaking to a dead man who's been in the tomb for four days now. But the power of God, through the word of Jesus, imparted life to a dead man. Do you understand that's exactly what the gospel does? When the rich young ruler walked away from, uh, from eternal life, dealing with Jesus there, right? He said, sell all you have and come and follow me. Jesus commented to the disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus replied, with people, this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, salvation is from the Lord. Do you realize that's the last thing that Jonah prayed while he was in the belly of the great fish? He prayed, he, he, he praised God and said, salvation is from the Lord. And then, and then the great fish spit him out. It requires the very power of God. The gospel is not just helpful advice 
that a person may decide to try out. Oh, you need to try God. He'll do your life good. No, it's the very power of God imparting life, new life, and salvation to those who were dead in their sins, which is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. And they're under God's just wrath and condemnation. Thomas Schreiner um, He's a theologian. He, he puts it this way. The preaching of the word does not merely make salvation possible, but affects salvation in those who are called. It is the means of salvation. We'll see. Salvation depends on the righteousness of God. Uh, it, it, it demands, excuse me, it doesn't depend. Salvation demands that the righteousness of God be upheld and applied to the guilty sinner. In verse 17, Paul explains why the gospel is the power uh, of God for salvation to everyone believe, who believes. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Key on that word. Before we go any further, note that the gospel is not the result of the religious genius of Paul or any of the other apostles. Rather, it was revealed to us by God through His Son. In Galatians 1.15, Paul explains his own conversion. Here's what he says. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me. That's pretty plain. The gospel comes to us by revelation from God that centers on His Son, Jesus Christ. Also note that Paul, he doesn't lead off with the love of God in the gospel, but rather with the righteousness of God. This is purposeful, I think. Certainly the gospel displays God's love for sinners, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So yes, the gospel reveals God's love. But do you understand that the love of God is not a stumbling block? It is not foolishness to sinners. They rather like the idea that God loves them. If God loves them and, he, and, and he's, he's not so big on righteousness, then it's easy to view Him as our good buddy in the sky. But the righteousness of God presents a problem. This becomes a stumbling block. Right? Stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks. Because we all know that we have sinned. We're not righteous. If God is righteous and we are not, then we need a Savior. But what does Paul mean when he says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed? There, there are three main options. And I opt for option number three. But let me go through them. First, he may mean that, the, that God's attribute of righteousness, the fact that he does what is right, is revealed to us in the gospel. If a person has no concept of the absolute righteousness of God, then he doesn't understand the precarious and frightening position of being under God's wrath as an unrighteous sinner. Somebody playing? Let me say that again. If a person has no concept of the absolute righteousness of God, then they don't understand their precarious and frightening position of being under God's wrath. They probably need to read uh, Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's a wake-up call. So the gospel reveals God's righteous character, which shows us our desperate need for salvation. 
It should drive us to the cross. Paul actually talks about this in Galatians chapter 3 about the law, saying that the purpose of the law is not to perfect us. The purpose of the law is to show us we can't keep it. It, it calls it a tutor to lead us to Christ. God's law is perfect. So when we break it, it doesn't do anything to us but show us we cannot satisfy the law. We need a Savior. Well, second, by righteousness of God, Paul may be referring to God's saving power in being faithful to His covenant promises. In the Old Testament, uh, it often refers to God's righteousness as the salvation of His people. Well, that's a possibility here. Third, by the righteousness of God, I believe Paul is referring to the righteousness that comes from God, which he gives to those who believe. Theologian F.F. F. Bruce, he argues that in the Old Testament, which forms the main background of Paul's thought and language, righteousness is not so much a moral quality as rather a legal status. He says, God Himself is righteous, and those men and women are righteous who are in the right relationship to God and His law. Well, I went into a bit this morning. Uh, just, I, I use Martin Luther as an example. His early years as a monk were torturous, torturous to him. He, 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 was, he was in total despair. He believed that he had to be righteous for God to accept him. So he would literally spend four to six hours every day in confessional, confessing things that we wouldn't even consider sins. The rest of the monks said, yeah, he's just trying to get out of his work. No, it was ripping him apart. Then he began to understand, verse 17, that our righteousness that the Scripture talks about is not our own righteousness. He calls it an alien righteousness because it comes from another source. It's God's righteousness that is given to us, it's imputed to us when we believe. When he saw that, boy, the blinders came off and he knew, he felt for the first time in his life, he was actually accepted by God. Because he was now had this foreign righteousness, a righteousness not of his own. So this third meaning is Paul's primary thought in verse 17. The gospel reveals how sinners may be righteous or justified before God by faith. God can grant right standing to sinners because his son met the righteous requirement of his perfect law. And he died to pay the penalty that sinners deserve. So sinners are not justified by their own righteousness in keeping the law. No, it's by God imputing the righteousness of Christ to them. Paul states this very plainly in Philippians 3. Here he's contrasting his former attempts to be righteous by keeping the law. He, he contrasts that with his experience, present experience with Christ. And here's what he says. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, and here's the summary, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You've heard me say this before, one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, He was sinless, to be sin on our behalf that we might become, what? 
the righteousness of God in Christ. That's where your righteousness is. This is the light that went off for Luther. He thought it was his righteousness. He had to be perfect to be accepted by God. And God showed him, no, it's my righteousness. All you do is believe. Now, the other key, this is, this is a key passage for this thought. The other one is from Rome, uh, excuse me, Genesis <clears throat> chapter 15. For the second time, God comes to Moses and, and, and gives him some promises and says that his, his, uh, his, his uh, not inheritance, his offspring are, are going to be huge, right? And that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him. And, he, and, and, and Abraham kind of, Abram at this point, kind of pushes back and says, Lord, how can it be? My heir is Eliezer of Damascus, his head servant. He didn't even have a son. <clears throat> so God says, let's take a walk. He goes outside. He says, look at the stars and count them if you can. What a futile thing to do, isn't it? Count them if you can. So shall your descendants be. Then in verse 6, we have one of the key doctrines in all of Scripture. It says, Abraham believed God and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. That's what we're talking about here. Believe and God counts you righteousness. How does He do that? Because of Christ's righteousness. Salvation upholds God's righteousness by applying it to the sinner who believes. It brings us to fourth point D. Salvation is by faith from start to finish. Paul mentions believing or faith four times in these two verses. He says, to everyone who believes, from faith to faith, and then the righteous man shall live by faith. So four times. If salvation comes through faith plus good works, guess what? That's not good news. Why? You never know when you're going to have enough good works. But if God declares guilty sinners to be righteous or justified the instant they believe, that is good news. But we need to be clear on several things here. Number one, saving faith is, is not just a general belief that He is, our, is the Savior. The de uh, James tells us the demons believe that, but they obviously are not saved. The saving faith has three elements. First, with the mind, we have to understand the content of the gospel, who Jesus is, what His death on the cross means for us, and that He was victoriously raised from the dead. Second, we have to have a heart response to the truth of the gospel. It's where we gr agree that it is true, and our agreement causes us to mourn over our own sin because we realize we've offended a holy God. But at the same time, we rejoice in the free offer of God's grace. How many of you remember, you know, you were adult enough to remember when you prayed to receive the Lord Jesus Christ? For me, it's something I will never forget simply because in that instant, I felt a freeness, a forgiveness I have never felt before. That's what Christ does for us. Well, the third, saving faith includes commitment to Christ. This is where we trust in Him and in His death on the cross as our only hope of eternal life and we follow Him as Lord. Saving faith is not a work that we do. It, it, it simply is receiving all that God offers us in Christ. It's, it's kind of like the hand that receives the free gift of God. That's faith. 
Well, number two, we need to understand what Paul means by the phrase faith to faith. Commenters, uh, they offer uh, different views, but I think Paul is emphasizing the centrality of faith in receiving the benefits of the gospel. The NIV translates it by faith from first to last. That's not a bad translation. That's not what it literally is, but I think that's a pretty good translation. We receive the gospel by faith and we go on living by faith. Now, this is sort of supported by the fact that in verse 16, uh, the gospel is a power of God to those who believe, right? It's a present participle. Uh, that, just, that just shows us that, that saving faith is not a single event. It's present tense. It means it's ongoing. That's what believing is. It's an ongoing, lifelong process. We are justified the instant we believe, but as we go on believing the gospel, God keeps revealing, us to, uh, revealing to us the fact that we have a right standing before Him on the basis of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross and in nothing else. Faith applies the imputed righteousness of Christ to us so that we increasingly rejoice in Christ alone as our only hope of eternal life. We never come to a place where we can trust in our good works as sufficient or even contributing in the least little bit to our salvation. Well, third, we need to understand how Paul uses Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, he uses it, uses it partly to show that his gospel is not a new idea that he has thought up. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, he confirms that uh, the truth that, that righteousness can only be attained on the basis of faith. Now, scholars debate uh, whether the quote should be translated, the righteous man shall live by faith, or the one who is righteous by faith shall live. They're, they're two different statements, and they're not totally sure. The first view would emphasize that those who are righteous are characterized by a life of faith. Now, we just talked about that, faith, faith first to last. So that kind of makes sense. That's true. The second view would say that those who are by faith righteous, they shall live. They shall be saved. Guess what? That's true too. <laughs> I think God allows some ambiguous language to be used in Scripture sometimes so that we can see it from different angles and we can see different things. be honest with you, I think they are both true. So I'm not going to tell you which one is right. Because I promise you, one of them is not wrong. All right? Well, E, salvation is individual and personal. It's not corporate. It's not national. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He could have said to the Jews, plural, first, and then also to the Greeks, plural, but he doesn't. It's all in the singular. Salvation is an individual and personal matter. Being a member of the Jewish race, that will not get you saved, even though the Jews were God's chosen people. Being an American or a member of a Christian family will not get you saved. You must personally believe in Christ. Now, by the, the Jew first, Paul means that the gospel came first in history to the Jews. God chose Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob, not through Ishmael, but the one who was promised, Isaac and Jacob. He chose them as the race to which he revealed his salvation. It was through the Jews that the Savior came. Uh, Jesus told the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. But here, 
Paul's emphasis is on the universal offer of the gospel. It's for everyone who will believe. It's for the religious Jew who will believe. And it's for the pagan Greek who will believe. None need be excluded. The good news is for you, whatever your background. Are you a self-righteous, religious, moral person? You cannot trust in any of those things. But as a sinner, you must receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. Are you an atheist or an immoral person or a greedy, uh, cheating businessman? You must turn from those sins and cry out to God for His mercy. He will hear you and you will go home justified today. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Second major point quickly, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, we must believe it. I ask, have you believed the gospel? Have you abandoned all of your self-righteousness and all of your good works as the basis for your standing before God? Have you instead trusted only in the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe this good news when you fail and Satan accuses you? That's what he does. He's your best friend trying to get you to the point of sin. Then when you sin, he's your worst enemy. And he accuses, that's what, (laughs) the accuser, that's, that's what Satan means. He accuses us. Do you look at your own life and feel that, yes, I I am worthless, God, I, I cannot be a Christian, or do you look to the cross? I promise if you look to your own life, you will eventually end up in, in, depression or despair because our lives just are not that good not when compared to holy and righteous God Um, so uh, on the basis of your right standing before God do you deal with sin that way is God's power to save you from the power of sin is that evident in your relationships in your home It should be. Well, third major point here, because the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes, we must proclaim it boldly. And this is what I'm asking God to put on our hearts for the uh, rooftop encounter, is that we will see our community as God sees our community. Let me ask you, are you ashamed of the gospel? Do you dodge warning people about the wrath of God? Because that's not a popular idea. Right? We love the love of God. We're not too keen on the righteousness of God and the wrath of God. Do you avoid telling them about the shed blood of Christ as the only remedy for sin because it sounds kind of primitive? Do you put a positive spin on the gospel so that it sounds like a, a, just a great plan for how to have a happy life uh, here and now? If so, Paul would say you're being ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the hard-hitting good news that God has revealed to us how we can be rescued from the wrath to come. It's the very power of God to save everyone who believes because in it, God reveals His perfect righteousness and and how it will be put to the account of every guilty sinner who trusts in Christ. I pray that we understand the gospel 
that we believe it personally. Remember, it's not corporate, it's personal. That we preach it to ourselves daily because we need the gospel daily. And that we proclaim it unashamedly to this lost world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you again just for the power, not only of salvation, but of your word. Uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that it is um, powerful. It's uh, dividing even down to the uh, uh, thoughts and intentions of our heart, uh, Father. So expose us here with your word. Show us where we're not trusting in what Christ has done, where we are laboring uh, because uh, we think somehow it's going to Bring us closer to you. Father, give us eyes to see the truth of this and what Christ has done on our behalf. And it's all available simply by faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I ask again, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know God through Jesus? Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Have you come to Jesus? If you have not, I urge you to do it. Paul says today is the day of salvation. If something is, is toying with you inside, don't ignore that. Don't ignore that. Run to it. That's the Holy Spirit just saying, hey, listen, you need to hear this. I encourage you, don't run from that. Run to it today. If you don't know what this is all about, that's fine. You come talk to me. I'll sit down with you. I'll show you Scripture. show you what it means to trust in Christ. And, and I'll show you what He's done on your behalf. If you're a believer, I hope that you've been challenged to lay aside your righteousness. That's what this whole pa passage is about. Luther finally saw that and he did exactly that. He became a light in Christianity because he finally saw that it's not about his righteousness. It's about the righteousness from God through faith. And it's Christ's righteousness that we receive. Do you understand that you have a negative on your account and that has to do with sin? And we talked about that. Sin's going to be dealt with eventually, Right? What do we have on the positive account? Again, um, 1 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's the plus to our account. And it never diminishes. <laughs> our righteousness, is, it, it looks like a waveform, right? It's all over the place. Righteousness of Christ that's it, baby. It doesn't get any better than that. And if you, are, if you belong to Christ, that's what you understand that's what God sees when He looks at you? He doesn't see your righteousness. Oh, my. That's why we can't bring anything to Him. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Now, I, I blew this in the first service. I mentioned this is a two-part thing, and I mentioned the first one and forgot where I was at and said, oh, well, do you realize that if you're a child of God, that there's nothing that you can do that's going to cause God to love you any less. God's love towards you is perfected in Christ Jesus. Conversely, there's nothing that you can do that's going to cause God to love you any more than He does right now if you're a child of His. Because His love is perfected towards us in Christ Jesus. It's Christ's righteousness. Learn to lean on that and not your own. It'll make a huge difference in your walk with the Lord. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.